Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to Queers, a podcast about politics and culture with Simon Copland and Benjamin Riley. Hi everyone, Ben here, and happy 2018. It's going to be a big year for the podcast, we've got a lot of exciting things planned that we'll talk more about soon, but one thing we can talk about right now is the fact that our brand new website is live. Head to our new URL, queerspodcast.com, and check it out. In between getting the website ready, Simon and I started the year with a trip to Melbourne for the Better Together Conference, where we did our first ever Queers live show. The episode you'll hear shortly is the one we recorded at that live show on the topic, Are We Better Together? We were joined by fabulous special guests Hannah McCann and Morgan Carpenter, who you'll also hear from in a moment, and we had some great discussion around the thorny topics of inclusion and difference in queer communities. We hope you enjoy the live show, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks with our first regular episode for the year. Uh, We're going to get started, and people can... If people are still coming, they can come in and join at any point. Um, thank you, everyone, for coming. Uh, it's it's really lovely to see people here. I want to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land, the Boonwurrung and Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, um, and pay my respects to their elders past, present, and emerging, uh, and elders from any other communities who may be here today. Our uh, queer communities cannot, help, cannot hope to solve problems like queerphobia, without also attempting to reckon with the racism on which our country is built. Uh, and hello, everybody. Um, I would also like to acknowledge the queer elders uh, past, present and emerging in our community. I think it's actually um, really good to have this conference on what will be the 40th anniversary of Mardi Gras that's coming up uh, pretty soon, which was not the start of a queer movement in Australia, but a very important moment in the queer movement in Australia. And this feels like a potentially a very important queer movement uh, moment in a, in a queer movement or queer community in Australia as well. Um, and it's good to see, you know, thinking 40 years back, thinking about how far, I guess, we've come or, you know, how much progress has been made or even, you know, the level of debates that we're having. Um, but I also think this conference will highlight the many debates that are still raging, um, as well as the issues that we still need to address as a community, and that's part of what we want to do today. Uh, so we should probably introduce ourselves. I am Benjamin Riley, uh, one of the co-hosts of the Queers podcast. Uh, I'm a freelance writer and journalist, um, writing mostly about queer stuff, as uh, will probably surprise no one, um, and uh, was the Victorian editor of the Star Observer for some years. Um, even though I now live in Sydney, Melbourne is very much my home, so it's uh, it's very good to be here. Uh, and I'm Simon Copland. I just want to say, you know, an apology that we're looking at our notes. We don't normally do this with an audience, so we're not used to, like, the bit where we wing it just yet. Totally. Um, I'm not even normally... used to wearing pants while I record <laughs> podcasts. Um, or any clothes at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, I'm a PhD student in sociology at the ANU, a freelance writer, uh, and sometimes an activist on queer and environmental issues. I also do powerlifting, love reg- rugby union, and I'm a David Bowie fanatic. And just on that note, I'd like to acknowledge uh, a very important thing that it's, a couple of days ago was actually the second anniversary of the death of David 
David Bowie, um, a very sad day in in the entire in, you know in my life and I think in the lives of everybody. Um, but I, what, what's really interesting is, while that has nothing to do with this conference in many ways, it was actually uh, David Bowie's death that was uh, that was the first uh, topic of our first ever episode. Um, so we're not quite on the second anniversary of our first ever episode. I went and had a look at those dates. Uh, it was on the 26th of January, so it was a little bit later. Um, but we're almost at the second birthday of our, um, of our episode. And the death of David Bowie also um, instigated my friendship here with Hannah, who's one of our guests um, uh, at that point of time, was sort of, we sort of bonded over over his death and our sadness over his death. So in, uh, you know, one of those really sad days has actually uh, created a lot of um, positive things for this podcast and hopefully we'll continue to do so in the future. Uh, so uh, to give a little bit of background about the podcast itself, we've been doing this for a couple of years. As Simon just said, uh, it's the first time we've done it live, um, which which is, you know, at, 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 in, it, at turns exciting and terrifying, um, but we've been wanting to do this for ages, so it's, it's good to be here. Uh, if you're not a regular listener, um, thanks for coming along. Uh, Queers is a fortnightly discussion podcast on queer politics and culture. Uh, we've talked about a whole range of issues ranging from the politics of pride, the corporatization of queer communities and what it means to be an ally, um, and amongst many others. Uh, we've also do regular interviews, which is something we're increasingly doing. Uh, we've chatted with Helen Razor, Benjamin Law, Nick Holas, and we've got many more to come. Uh, you've probably also noticed the strange fact that we're talking into microphones, but there's no amplification. Um, the reason we're doing that is because we're recording this as an episode and we'll be releasing in our feed. Now, uh, the, the mics are up here, so it should just kind of get us. But when we have a Q&A session uh, or like a Q&A segment at the end, um, just bear that in mind. If you, if, you ask, if you want to ask a question, but you don't want to be on the podcast, just let, it know and we c- let us know and we can, uh, we can cut that out if we, if we need to. Uh, yeah, so in a couple of minutes we'll start uh, our episode as we usually start our episodes. Um, and so what we're going to do is we'll we'll sort of uh, have the, our, our theme music, which Ben's going to play on his phone, just to bring a little ambiance. It's supposed to be a surprise. <laughs> Sorry. We'll introduce the topic and then we'll be introducing our very special guests who you'll hear a bit more about shortly. And then we'll have a discussion and we'll open up to questions at the end. Um, we're just noting that uh, we're, the conference is running over already, so we'll probably cut down our, com- our session a little bit, uh, which might mean sh- cutting down our discussion time and our questions, just so you can all get to lunch on time. Yep, because we're already starting like half an hour late, I think. Um, so uh, please tweet and um, tweet along with the with the discussion. The conference hashtag is Better Together Twenty Eighteen, and we're going with Queers Podcast Live as the hashtag for this. If you want to at us in any of the tweets, we're at Queers Podcast. Uh, I'm at Ben C Riley, and Simon's at Simon Copland, and we'll um, we will introduce your handles with your bios, special guests. Um, okay, let's start. You ready? You ready, yeah. Simon? You're, You're listening, listening to Queers, a podcast about politics and culture with Simon Copland and Benjamin Riley. Oh no, I should have had this ready. Here we go. <laughs> it's the 12th of January, 26, uh, 2016. God, off to a good start. 2018, <laughs> I'm Benjamin Riley. And I'm Simon Copland. Uh, welcome to Queers. Each episode we talk our way through questions on a theme and this week we are recording live at the Better Together conference in Melbourne asking the question, are we better together? Even in its name, the Better Together conference implies that there is something to be gained from broad queer solidarity. But as the LGBTQIA acronym continues to expand, do we need to ask questions about what it means for us to group ourselves together in the ways that we do? 
Do we achieve more of our goals when we work together, or do dominant voices drown out others? Do we even share goals? Are some of our beliefs and our social and political aims incompatible, and if so, does that mean we can't still come together? Uh, these are some pretty massive questions, and they're massive questions that are do- going to dominate this conference, and much too big for us to answer in a single discussion, or probably at all in, in reality. But luckily today we'll have some help, uh, so I'd like to invite uh, our two special guests, or introduce our two special guests for today's event, uh, Dr Hannah McCann and Morgan Carpenter. So Dr Hannah McCann is a lecturer in gender studies at the University of Melbourne. Her research explores feminine gender presentation as represented in feminist discourse and in queer femme LGBTIQ communities. Uh, LGBTIQ fan subcultures, beauty culture, and effective and aesthetic labour. Her research monograph, Queering Femininity... femininity, That's a tongue twister. See, we can edit these out when we... (laughs) Sexuality, feminism... So, Queering Femininity, Sexuality, Feminism, and the Politics of Presentation is now out with Rootledge. Um, Hannah has a very popular blog titled Binary This, and she tweets at Binary This. Welcome, Hannah. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, Morgan Carpenter is a co-executive director of Organisation Intersex International Australia and a consultant to GATE and the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights. He is signatory to the Jogjakarta Principles Plus 10, a member of an Australian Human Rights Commission expert reference group on protecting the human rights of people with variations of sex characteristics in the context of medical interventions, and a signatory of the Darlington Statement, an Australian and New Zealand intersex community consensus document. Morgan tweets at Morgan Carpenter. Thanks for being here, Morgan. Um, thanks for the invitation. It's a real pleasure to be here. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to kick off with a couple of questions for you both. Uh, so maybe, Hannah, I'm going to start with you. Uh, we were just discussing this before, but you've actually just written a paper titled Solidarity is Possible, arguing that splits within the queer community, um, in, in this particular case, specifically, yeah, and in this particular case specifically between gay men and lesbian women, are not inevitable. Can you give us a bit of a summary of the argument of the paper and maybe even uh, some ideas about how that we could achieve that solidarity? Hmm. So, um, the paper that I just wrote with my partner, actually, um, is about the 1970s in Australia. So, we're really looking at the kind of historical assumption that there was a split at some point in the 70s between gay men and lesbians in terms of organising that was inevitable because of the sexism of gay men in the organising. So, what we did is we went into the Lesbian and Gay Archives here and to the National Library in Canberra. And we looked through um, a number of different archival um, pieces, such as the the lesbian newsletter that was produced here in Melbourne, um, minutes and meeting notes around the National Homosexual Conference that was held, um, you know, in this during the seventies each year in the seventies, and we looked at a lot of other kind of documents that were produced at that time. And what we found was that, um, yes, there were splits, but they certainly weren't inevitable in the sense that there was a lot of debate around the splits at the time. So it wasn't just this kind of um, resignation to fragmentation, but rather that there were a lot of different people committed to mixed organising and working together and arguing against separatism, the lesbian separatism that was emerging at the time and that really gained... Um, more of a foothold in the 1980s. So, uh, yeah, I'm, what was the other part I of that I think the other question? part was, you know, <laughs> you, you, you say there's solidarity is possible was the sort of the head, the title of the paper. Yeah. You know, are there lessons that you can draw from that about how that solidarity is possible? What are the, what are the things that might need to occur for that sol- sol- solidarity to occur? I think one of the really interesting things was that we found that there's such a... Um, 
such a heavy presumption around the inevitability of fragmentation and the impossibility of working together that it actually changed changes the way that people remember history. So we found um, several kind of historical reflections that were reflecting on the time and we went back to the original things that they were reflecting on and found that they'd kind of told the story in a very particular way to support that thesis of people splitting um, inevitably. And so I suppose part of the lesson is changing the way we think about these things as inevitable and... um, not being afraid of debate I think so it's not to say that there wasn't sexism but there was certainly a lot of different kinds of people that wanted to address sexism at the time and it was a major issue for the homosexual um, conferences that were held um, and in with within different groups within mixed group organizing um, there was also lots of conflicting issues around um, say the women's liberation organizing that was happening at the time in the 70s not wanting to address lesbian issues so there was like a fraction there but there was a lot of gay men supporting lesbians in the kind of struggle with feminism so there was a lot of different moments and um, you know moments of solidarity in different ways between different groups of people so I think the lesson for today is not shying away from the debate but also not thinking that it's impossible to have solidarity. So not imagining that a debate and argument within our communities is going to inevitably mean we all need to be off doing our own thing and Absolutely. come work together. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think that um, the most important thing is to recognise that there have been these moments of solidarity, with with the first Mardi Gras being a fantastic example of that. You know, this um, kind of having coalition politics, even when it's really hard and you do have different perspectives... And there are issues, you know, of sexism, of homophobia, but struggling through those together towards a broader liberation goal. I mean, that was the whole thing about the 1970s was that it wasn't just about recognising this identity, that identity. It was about our common goal for changing the whole fabric of society. Uh, Morgan, uh, to, to go to you uh, Australia for for some years now has been including I uh, intersects in the acronym, um, and and I think more than it seems happens in say in some other countries like like the US for example. Um, do you think the LGBTIQ movement in Australia is genuinely invested in intersex inclusion? Oh, that's a hard question. I mean, just to be clear, I mean we're here uh, at Bless Together with a number of international organisations like Stonewall UK like the Human Rights Campaign from the U.S., and like GLAAD from the U.S. But none of those three organizations is an LGBTI organization. Um, Stonewall, for example, has a very clear policy framework that says it's an LGBT organization. Um, So none of them make claims about uh, representing intersex interests. Uh, And when they come into this Australian perspective where people talk about LGBTI, um, often people here have, um, I guess, assumed that, that, that because they are LGBT organizations in the US that, that, or, or the UK, that they are actually LGBTI organizations. People treat those two terms as synonymous. Um, and to me, that, that kind of is an indication of um, an unfortunate reality, which which is that um, intersex-specific issues are are not well understood. 
um, and intersex people are frequently invisible in LGBT spaces. Uh, just as an example, I mean, um, people often talk about, you know, we've heard people talking today about sexuality and gender diversity, as if that encapsulates the issues affecting an entire LGBTI population. Uh, but it doesn't, um, because there are intersex people here in this conference who are both uh, heterosexual and cisgender. Um, so they are part of you know, the mainstream population in, 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 in some perspectives. But you can be heterosexual and cisgender and have an intersex variation. Um, so there, there is actually now kind of a, a new language that is developing and becoming a bit more prominent. And you can find it in the, in the Yogacara Principles Plus 10 document. Uh, and, and that you know we talk about a language of sex characteristics which focuses on on our bodies and uh, and that helps us to contextualize uh, the human rights violations that we face it also helps to to distinguish between sex characteristics and legal sex classifications and for many people um, there's, there's an expectation that if you have particular sex characteristics, there are discrete sets of sex characteristics that, are, that correlate with particular sex classifications. And that doesn't often happen for intersex people. There, there are different kinds of sex characteristics that we have. Um, and, um, yeah, really, uh, this language helps us to... Focus on the issues that are of importance to our population. So, well, so what I wanted to ask, sort of building on that, and it's, I think it sort of builds on Hannah's discussion as well about the inevitability, the potential inevitability of splits. Or you know, I know splits doesn't necessarily have to be a negative thing in some ways, but do you think there has been value in the Australian context of the the I being included in the acronym, or has it not actually helped advance? The, the, the issues that intersex people, fa- intersex people face in Australia? Um, I, I think there are advantages and disadvantages. Um, and it's quite difficult to sum those up as if um, you can do that very neatly. Uh, I mean, th- some of the advantages are that there are spaces where intersex voices are heard where we, we would not otherwise be heard. Um, and that, that's a hugely enormous benefit. Um, and the fact that we can have these conversations today, even at this conference, uh, is a demonstration of that in itself. Um, but th- there are also huge disadvantages. And, and, you know, I mean, this week, in recent days, I've, I've been asked to review um, a, um, a national survey a proposed national survey um, that was predicated on the idea that intersex people are transgender. Um, and I've also read, you know, press reports associated with, um, you know, the first uh, marriages that took place this week without any kind of waiver. Uh, and many of those were predicated on the idea that intersex people are all gay. Um, so th- these assumptions actually have a very negative impact on a, a large part of the intersex population that is neither um, transsexual or transgender or um, or gay or lesbian or queer. I mean, the probably 
uh, leads us nicely into a, a question that will kind of open up to everyone and, and get into a, a broad discussion now, which is, and it's it's kind of a big one, but uh, you know, does an LGBTIQ movement uh, politics make make sense, and does it make sense, I guess, now and in Australia? <laughs> that is a big question. We, I mean, you know, and we can we can start wherever we want, and and we'll probably sort of narrow into specific. Um, uh, specific issues, so maybe a, a good place to start, and an obvious one is uh, something that's that's very much raised by questions around intersex communities, which is that do uh, does grouping us together mean that inevitably more dominant voices drown out other voices? <laughs> um, I mean, you could argue that's true within the intersex population, and it's also true when we look at um, this construct of LGBTI, where, where the voices. We know that get heard a lot are the ones that are, that, you know, that, that that talk about popular issues, issues that affect people who are um, often white, cisgender, dyadic, gay men, uh, and I use that word dyadic deliberately. Uh, it, Would you be able to just explain dyadic to folks to who, who, yeah, might, yeah, not, who might not understand it? Um, it's not a very common word yet. Yeah, it, that's why. That's why I wanted to yeah, ask. It, yeah, it means not intersex. Um, so just just so you know, I mean, intersex people are born with sex characteristics that do not fit medical norms for what it means to have female or male bodies. Yeah, it does not mean we have any particular sexual orientation. It does not mean we have any particular gender identity. Uh, you know, that that definition is not about either of those issues. It's about the the, the medical norms that. Um, Construct how we are treated. Well, I think I think I think going to that point, Morgan, about uh, you know within both the intersex communities and I think within you know gay communities, lesbian communities, that often voices get drowned out. Um, I think that's quite a common occurrence that occurs. But I'm not convinced that that is necessarily and because of a grouping of ever people together and that that. That the grouping of of the LGBTIQ sort of banner necessarily is the thing that does that, and that if we were to split off, that that, that you know that that those voices would be raised higher because they're not part of the umbrella. I'm I'm not I'm, I think that there's actually the potential if that if you, if you split off that actually the 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 the, issue, the voices of intersex communities could actually, as one example, or trans communities or um, non-binary people might actually be drowned out even more because it will be seen as just being a thing, you know, the, the main focus in, in the media might just be focused solely on lesbian and gay issues, whereas the potential, and, I, and I'm not sure if I agree with this, I'm, I'm just raising this as a potential, that the potential of bringing these, you know, together under an umbrella like this uh, has the potential to to at least start to raise those debates internally within within a movement or a community that can lead to these sorts of issues being raised more broadly in a, in a broader community. And I think that this is a good example, this conference is a good example of that, whereas if we didn't have the I in the LGBTI um, uh, uh, acronym in Australia so much, there would probably be much less intersex representation at this um, conference, which might lead to less debate about you know, the, difference between, the differences between sex characteristics and gender, for example, is one issue. Now, I, I'm not sure if that's the case, but it is one sort of hypothesis that I'm working on that, you know, group, group, grouping together actually creates a potential for more debate internally, at least, which can lead to greater debate externally as well. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, but, but we have to say as well that there are around 12 people uh, with intersex variations here uh, out of 600. So yeah, it's about 2% of the conference. 
um, which is not a very high number. Um, it's, it, I'm glad people are here. I mean, uh, and I'm glad people are going to engage in this space and speak. And it's not just going to be me, even though you know I'm here now. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, we are here. I mean, the, the difficulty is that you know an LGBTI framework is or an LGBTI lens is only one of a multiple, a multiplicity of different lenses on what it means to be intersex. And, you know, it's probably not even the most dominant one. The most dominant one in our lives is still the medical lens on what it means to be intersex. And that lens says that we um, have uh, disorders of sex development. And that label defines or, or helps to construct a disordering of intersex bodies and the kinds of uh, medical interventions and treatments that we experience. So, so, so LGBTI is only one lens of many uh, and um, certainly that lens is privileged within LGBT spaces at the expense of an understanding or comprehension of those other lenses. You know, I'm not even sure that, you know, people do often don't know what intersex is, when, even though the, the label is used. And, and then people are un unaware of those other um, ways of uh, regarding us, our, our bodies, and our lives. So I mean, and I would say that, like, obviously, that's that's a, a very uh, heightened context for intersex people, but I would say that that's, that's true of of most LGBTI people that there are various frameworks through which um, we I guess you know live our lives as as people and, and, and engage with the the um, the kind of day-to-day -day problems that we have I mean Simon and I've talked a lot about um, mental health as something that's that's often sort of conflated in in some uh, I would say problematic ways with with the experience of LGBTI people but that uh, doesn't always make sense to 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 lay those things exactly over the top of each other so I think there's a lot here that points to the importance of I don't, well just complexity being able to situate people within various um, uh, contexts at, at the same time or at different times. I mean, and, and Hannah, that's kind of part of some of the work you've done about, I mean, in the, in the 1970s, and, that, and this continues today, about uh, the intersection between gender and feminism and the LGBTIQ community and, and people, and, and particularly in, in, a, in, a, in a lot of feminist communities who sort of uh, said that my, be, that, you know, being a woman was more, you know, was a, was a higher, I'm not sure of a higher level, but it was sort of a more dominant part of their identity than being a lesbian for example or etc so I'm not sure if I got my language quite right there but you know that sort of discussion about you know not all you know that being LGBTIQ was not necessarily the sort of prime motivation for a form of activism necessarily in those spaces. Mm, I think that was a major tension at the time and it still is a major tension for a lot of people obviously um, but I think if I mean we're all here so the question is what do we share and what are we sharing in terms of struggle so if we're going to struggle together if we're going to have a vision of struggling together what is it that is common and how can we recognize the differences in a way that's still towards that common goal I think that's the challenge and it's not easy but we there are things in common you know as much as there are differences and really specific needs for different communities there is a marginalization of all of us on the basis of the norms of sexuality and or gender as they are deeply interconnected. And um, we don't have the same experiences, but we are powerful if we come together to fight those norms and that 
those oppressions that we face in different facets of our life, in the family, um, at work, from, you know, broader politics, policy, um, health, the health system. So, you know, being able to recognise that common goal and also fighting for others, with others, not because you have the specific um, experience and you, you know, um, not just leaving it up to different groups to fight for those things, to say, you know, I am actually going to to help you fight for... Um, whatever the cause is, like uh, being able to donate blood or, um, you know, adoption rights or, or whatever it is. Hmm. I mean, that's a really interesting point. And I think one that doesn't, uh, we don't, has, is lost a bit sometimes in, in contemporary LGBTI politics, LGBTIQ politics, um, that like solidarity is about relating to people whose experiences you don't share, is about kind of being empathised with people who are not just like you. And I think... We have that with the kind of the the notion of allies, which is a term that that I'm not always a big fan of. But perhaps within our communities, um, we kind of go, okay, well, I, you know, for example, am like oppressed on the basis of being a, a gay man. Um, therefore, I don't know, maybe for some people that might might make us feel like uh, we can sort of section that oppression off and not necessarily have to empathise with broader LGBTI issues in a way that, say, someone who doesn't belong to that community at all or any of those communities at all would? I think there's a lot of fear to speak on behalf of others. So it's, you know, and that's reasonable because there has been different points in time where certain voices have dominated and it's been um, a, a terrible thing. So I think that the consequence of that has been with more kind of fracturing of uh, of identities and different kind of groups emerging, um, that people are really afraid to partake in things that they don't directly experience or to to include those things or or whatever. And I just think that that um, caution is is good, but also it is not good if you then leave that up to all of you know that group to do that thing. Um, I think a better approach is to uh, be brave and careful and considerate. Um, and if someone calls you out and says that wasn't the right thing to say or the right thing to do, to own it. I mean, the worst thing I've seen in communities is when um, someone gets called out for kind of speaking on behalf of others and doesn't then just kind of runs away. And um, I just think... It's just part of struggling together that you work those things out. And, and, that, and that goes back, I guess, to one of your original points, Hannah, which is about the importance of internal, internal debate, which I think is... I mean, it's something we talk about a lot on the podcast, but I think is something that in the community is often sort of seen as a negative, that if we're having debates and internal discussions, even fights at times, that that is sort of holding us back. That, I mean, that was literally said at the, at the plenary this morning <laughs> yeah actually you're right it, it was literally said you know that there's this sort of idea that we just all have to come together and we have to pick a, a way forward and that we have to just follow this way forward and get to a goal which which is ill-defined and, and not particularly defined and is you know and in turn often can mean that it is the goal of the dominant group because they're the ones with the dominant voices and then you get told to sort of get in line unless you're unless you're following that goal whereas I think that actually encouraging that debate is actually a really important thing and it is a way that can 
ensure that solidarity is is possible because otherwise you can't you know otherwise people do get left behind because they feel like their voices aren't being heard or they feel like they can't have a say in this process or that there are goals that are being met that are totally opposite to the goals of some of other of other of other people which is not a good way to go about things it it was such a tragedy to see this playing out in the marriage equality debate um being part of the organizing i mean i wasn't I wasn't an organiser, but I went to the meetings where they were organising door knocking and things like that here in Melbourne. And it was deeply frustrating that they wanted to shut down debate, the main organisers, because it was like, we've got this goal, this is what it is, dignity, fairness, respect, commitment, love. And uh, there was no room for addressing some of the issues that were actually coming up around the intense transphobia that was being um, promoted by the no side, there was no ability to engage with that because it, uh, there was this sense of, no, we have to focus on the positive, we have to focus on our message. And every time I heard um, someone get up and say, you know, from the, the main organisers to say, you know, we've just got to come together on this one, like put all of our differences aside, that completely missed the point of struggling together towards this common goal. And it absolutely undermined what could have come from that period of struggle, which is uh, diversifying our, um, you know, our claims, basically. I mean, we ended up with a very narrow thing that we won and such a shame. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. And I mean, and I think that that's just not just about, I mean, it wasn't just about uh, transphobia, which is obviously a very strong part of the No campaign, but I think we were talking a bit before about the sort of very white nature of the campaign as well. So it was one that was very middle class, one that um, sort of ignored um, a lot of the sort of... Well, didn't use language that necessarily spoke to, to different migrant communities or people of colour. Uh, it was, you know, very white in its messaging, very um, middle class in its messaging, and so in turn was focused on a dominant group but also ignored those potential debates internally. And we saw a little bit of those debates around the transphobia um, that occurred at the start, but they were very, you know, quickly shut down um, within the community to be, you know, no, we have to move forward and go forward in this particular goal and we have to get there... And then, you know, and often we hear that then we can have the debate afterwards is often what you get told. But then you get to the, you know, afterwards and the debate doesn't occur or uh, you get told, well, now we have to focus on this next one goal. Well, I mean, you know, to be fair, like, that's kind of what (laughs) this is. Um, I'd be curious to, (laughs) I'd be curious to hear people's thoughts on the the potential of of today even and today and tomorrow and this this conference for um, shaping an agenda or even, even, even that makes me a bit uncomfortable because it makes it sound like, you know, we're all going to come together, agree on something, and then we've got one, two, three, four issues that we go away and, and that's what we focus on for the next couple of years. But even, you know, taking a hammer to the the kind of statue that is whatever the community has wanted, you know, the community in inverted commas has wanted over the past few years and, and just kind of gone, well, now everything's on the table and, and we all need to reckon with that. Do you think that's... Um, is this an important... Like, is this how we do this? Is this how we start to reframe the conversation and, and complexify it? Oh, I'm not, I'm not sure we can complexify very much. I think people have a very limited capacity for that, uh, particularly about stuff that, that is not very well understood. Um, I mean, I, th- I think it is good to be here. It is good to, um, to share and to discuss, for example, those issues that have come out of the marriage equality campaign. Um, but, I mean, I, I, I'm in a situation 
you know, I've been an insects activist now since 2010, um, which is eight years. I, I still have to make sure that I define what intersex is every time that I speak. Yeah. Yeah, we even um, asked you before to to help. We even asked you before to to, to define one term and yeah, uh, you know, something that we should you know be, be be knowing more about. Yeah. So so a big part of what we are about still in these spaces is, is actually just simple explanation and just trying to convey messaging that that does reflect. Uh, a population that often is only partly here. I mean, the, the insects people that are in these spaces tend to be LGBT. Yeah? There is a large population of insects people who are not in these spaces. There are peer support groups which may be parent-led or, or, or may be diagnosis-specific groups that are not in these spaces, that people in these spaces actually have no conception of. Um, so... I mean, we can complexify things within an intersex space that actually has as much complexity or more complexity as there is in this space. Um, but we can't bring all that here. I mean, that to me kind of goes to the, the, the really the core of a lot of these issues and, and uh, something that, that Simon and I have, have not always 100% agreed on is, is almost just around this question. I, f- I feel like there's a, a, a real tension between... Like, it goes to the question of... like. Se- well, separatism is too strong a word, but the, the difference between organizing within groups of people where you have the ability to have those complex discussions where you are not needing to spend a lot of time and energy ed- educating people outside of those spaces and that there are certain things that we can achieve through doing that. And that's, I think, true of, of um, any community really fighting for any goal, though, though to more or less extents, depending on what it is. And the fact that to some degree we have to acknowledge that ed- educating people is is, is part of it, you know. That's that's unfortunately something that we have to do, and you know, we've uh, certainly both been frustrated at at the just blanket statements that you get from some people saying, um, you know, I won't spend any time like telling anyone, like educating anyone. Um, and it's like, well, I mean, I get that it sucks, but you kind of got to do it. Like, is there um, are those two things? Are those two approaches in, incompatible, or do we just kind of go? We get different things out of those uh, out of those spaces. Yeah, I mean, you, Morgan. Uh, Morgan or Hannah or yeah. anyway. I think people are really tired, so it's totally understandable that this burden of constantly having to explain things, especially when information's so easy to access yes. online, <laughs> is is deeply frustrating. But I guess the other thing is that we can't just, uh, you know, we can't actually just sit here and figure everything out. Like we have to be in the world and we have to be doing things in the world together to for that to make sense so you know like having a um a claim and having a demand and then working together on that makes more sense for having those discussions and figuring that out rather than just sitting in a room and like figuring out who we all are and like some massive blueprint as if that's going to be the way forward because it'll it changes in struggle so i think i don't maybe i'm just having a side point on your actual question but <laughs> that's all right this this podcast is full of side points it's just like <laughs> actually i think there's just too much emphasis on figuring it out um before actually kind of doing stuff and i think maybe we need to do stuff figure it out along the way and have a hard time maybe but also you know if someone says you know what i don't actually want to explain that to you then go look it up but you keep working together <laughs> 
Yeah, and I think that, and I think that's a good point. And I really like the the approach you talk about there of sort of doing stuff and then figuring it out as we go along. Because I think that, you know, and and that goes back to the sort of the, even the start the starting plenary today, where there was a lot of talk about you know we're going too slow and we've got to speed up to get to where we're going, which is which I found found kind of weird because I don't really know where we're going and I don't think there is a blueprint of where we're going and what equality and rights for LGBTI people mean, particularly because I think that there are debates that need to be had about that because we have different perspectives on what we want to get to, even if we any of us have an idea of what getting to equality even means in the first place, because I'm sure as hell don't have an understanding of what that actually looks like. And so... To say that there's this sort of we're going to get there faster when the, maybe we're going to have a debate about what there even is, or even just you know start working towards things without this idea of there being this big blueprint that we're going to move towards that is equality and that we can define is probably a first starting point that we can't actually figure that stuff out and and being able to say we can't have a blueprint and that's okay we just got to start doing things and having the debates to figure out what's you know what's the next step maybe or but it sounds like you know part of the problem here is that that is framed as a dichotomy you know that it's it's not like there are people who are, are pushing both of those um points maybe you know the idea of like sitting down and having big discussions about where we should be going and then you know people like was said at the plenary this morning about needing to kind of rush forward and that uh you know they're not those things are not incompatible we can do bits of both and should do bits of both i think i agree with a lot of what you're saying i mean there's a few things occur to me i mean one of them is that i think the intersex movement specifically uh, has been uh, in you know, we, we are doing stuff for the first time ever, all the time. Yeah, I mean, we we, we have. Uh, I mean, the momentum has been really incredible to watch from a from a side. I was yeah. you know seeing stuff coming out more and more has been really great. Yeah, wow, it's nice to hear. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, it <laughs> um, really has. Um, but but the, uh, but I would challenge this idea um, that there is. Uh, uh, well, two things. One thing. I submitted a, a workshop proposal to the conference organizers a few months ago. Uh, I guess you did as well for the podcast. Um, but when I was submitting that, I mean, I was thinking about the, the language of, of the organization that, that is holding the event. And I, you know, and I respect them and, and what they're trying to do. And I'm really glad they put the event on. But this idea of equality that we've all been talking about now for the last few minutes, I mean, that word equality surprisingly, that does not appear once in a Darlington statement, which is this consensus statement of um, the, the intersex movement in Australia and New Zealand. It doesn't appear once. You know. There are many other issues in that document about bodily integrity, about autonomy, uh, about choice, uh, and about um, things like reasonable accommodations in the workplace. But the word equality itself does not appear. Um, and the other thing I want to challenge is... Um, this notion that there is a, I don't know, this kind of waterfall uh, of um, actions that help to promote equality, that we, we achieve one step and then we, we achieve another step. There is this process where we begin and there is a next step forward, as if there are not people already working on those other steps. Yeah. Because people have been working on those other steps for, for a decade or more, or decades. Or even as if that 
things follow each other in a natural occurrence and that we have this long arc towards justice, which is another, you know, it's a famous Martin Luther King quote that, you know, the, the, the arc of history always t- t- you know, tends towards justice. And it's something that I don't actually agree with because I think that there is pushback and there is, you know, reactions from the right that can often come and that things can go backwards and it doesn't necessarily always, you know, we can't just wait for history to occur and that in the end, in 15 years' time, we'll all be equal. And and then getting to the point about equality as well as, you know, we could go on a rant for ages about equality, I think. Um, but, <laughs> and frequently do. You know, the, you know, the idea that, you know, it'll, we'll just have to wait and eventually we'll just get there, I think, is is also a bit naive in many ways because I don't think that's you know you don't get there without struggle and without you know and you you know you can't just wait for it to occur and eventually it'll just happen there has to be struggle involved i think we're we're also kind of framing um this a bit as though there are like a whole bunch of different issues and this is a a question of attention of of how much attention the community or or different parts of the community or, or activism or government can pay to any of these given things i think it's also worth worth saying and this sort of feeds into this idea of 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 quote unquote progress that we we I mean, sometimes we explicitly disagree on what is on what should happen on what's best. Um, you know, for example, uh, around you know a lot of uh, uh, representative pushes for things like more queer people on boards or on TV or in sport. And the boards boards is a, a kind of better example. Is it has a real kind of tension with people who who have really kind of anti-capitalist politics, for example. Like those things, those things are, are just genuinely not at all. Uh, compatible. I mean, we've had this discussion about pride as well, about the incorporation of people, of you know, the police and the military in pride, and that that is a genuine tension that exists and a genuine debate that exists. And it's not really necessarily something that you might get to a compromise on. It's actually just genuine disagreement, and that disagreement needs to be had. Hannah, I'd be I'd be curious to ask you because you've talked a bit about um, the the need for it to be okay to disagree with each other within the community. I mean, how, like, so I keep using the, the, the term community as if it kind of means something, but I'll just keep doing it for ease. Um, do, do you have any sense of, of what uh, pr- promoting that or promoting spaces where we can do that might even look like? Promoting solidarity? No, and, well, or uh, debate? Yeah, or I guess kind of safe, safe is maybe not the right word either, but the, the possibility of debate even without people freaking out or without you know, people thinking this is the end of the world or the end of the movement or whatever? Well, I think it's really important to have debate, but it's also important to not to understand that not all sides of debates are good. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, uh, I don't... I have a particular position, say, on the police being in Mardi Gras, and if I was in the debate, I'd want to win the debate. Um, <laughs> like, I think you, it's really problematic if you end up having, like, a very liberal politics that says that means everyone's got equally correct views and that that's how we're just going to have... We're just going to mush that together forever because actually that ends up being conservative. Like, that ends up having the cops in the, the Mardi Gras. Like, I think, you know, we it's about having debate and having different polls, but also, I mean, I'm coming from an incredibly left-wing, like, liberationary kind of politics. Like, it's not... I, I don't want to make it sound like I just think that that means... Everyone's okay. Everything's yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I actually think that ends up being much more problematic. Mm. So, yes, room for debate. I don't have all the answers. <laughs> but I do have a left politics and I would hope that it would win. But, I mean, I think for me, part of that actually goes to the point of 
acknowledging that sometimes the splits aren't necessarily between the different letters, but the splits are about a different political perspective and that we can often have greater solidarity around political perspectives even if we're crossing over the different letters and that we don't, from my perspective, do a very good job of acknowledging that those different, very fundamentally different political perspectives often exist within the LGBTIQ community. And maybe that's because a more liberal perspective is just, it dominates in the mainstream discourse, and I'm thinking about mainstream media discourse, which sort of ignores the, you know, the liberationary approach that often exists, which is a very different, fundamentally different political perspective um, that crosses over the, the, you know, the letters, the the broad spectrum of the letters. Mm. I mean, on the Mardi Gras example, um, because I don't want to come off sounding contradictory, my my vision would be that you'd have the debate, I'd be arguing for the left side, and if I didn't win, I'd still be in the Mardi Gras. I think that's the difference, isn't it? So it's like we struggle together, we disagree, certain views might win, but you don't you don't boycott it. Like you don't then tap out because you're still struggling together. So I think you're absolutely right, Simon. I think it's a political question about which politics is going to be the politics of the day that wins. And it's difficult because we're in a we're in a downturn and we've been in a downturn of struggle for quite some time and there's been a shift from the um, idea that it's about social transformation of our fundamental kind of fabric of society to questions of recognition and representation. So looking, um, I mean, if you look at, um, I feel like I don't mean to be critical of this conference, but if you look at, say, the way that this conference is organised around different parts of the acronym um, compared to, say, the 1975 homosexual conference that was held at Melbourne Uni, um, which was all about, you know, how are we oppressed in different facets of our life? How, um, who are we? Are we teachers? Are we from the media? Are we from health? And how are we going to fight these oppressions um, in those spaces? So it was very much about... Uh, the struggle, I guess, of, of, of liberation rather than um, who is represented and how can we do some internal kind of work on our identity to, you know, make sure that we get it right, exactly right. So, you know, we, we're in this period where we're very much focused, not to say that recognition is not important, it's just that that's where we're at. We've, we've not on the redistribution. We're not talking about the way in which, say, you know, uh, economic inequality affects the LGBTIQ community m- massively and we're in this horrific period of capitalism, <laughs> um, right? Like, you know, where all these questions of fighting over services and money are because of this structure. So, you know, that's not really even on the agenda. Totally. The importance of acknowledging that we are operating within a politics, you know, not that we we are some... Like that, our only values are the kind of the, the progress of issues associated with our community. But this is a specific historical and political moment that we need to decide whether we how we feel about that and, and whether we're okay with it. And I think maybe going back to some of those points you're making, Hannah, I think that also brings me back to you know your point, Morgan, about equality as as a as a as a as a term that we should be thinking about challenging. Because I I, I want to ask you about a bit more about it. But you know, my critique of the idea of equality is that I think that it is a very conservative demand in many ways that is about fighting for access to conservative institutions, which don't have a broader liberationary, which in turn doesn't have a broader liberationary approach, um, and and can actually result us result in us 
entering into conservative institutions that are oppressive in other ways and seeing that as a victory. Now, that's my critique. I'm wondering, Morgan, if you could go into a bit more about your critique of the idea of equality and, you know, why didn't it appear, for example, in the Darlington Statement, um, which is quite a powerful statement? Well, I, I'm not quite sure why it doesn't appear in the Darlington Statement. I mean, it, it, it wasn't a deliberate yeah. strategy or decision not to include the word, but it doesn't appear there. I mean, the, the, the first substantive... Um, well, the first statements are actually about intersectionality and about d- defining ourselves and about recognizing that we're really diverse and, and, and accepting and, and, and um, welcoming that. The first substantive statement is about a prohibition on uh, deferrable medical interventions to modify the sex characteristics of infants and children and adolescents. Um, the next substantive statement is about legal gender recognition and it makes a quite a profound statement, which I think is one that not many people have have heard yet. That 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 you know the creation of third gender categories and the assumption that intersex people are a third category has actually caused harm to a number of intersex people. Um, so we make a rather more radical liberationary uh, demand of, of of ending requirements for. Uh, Sex or gender to be documented on, a, uh, you know, identification documents I mean, in official uh, that's forms. Potentially, an interesting point about equality there in itself is the demand for a third gender marker, for example, a sort of an equality-based um, argument. One that 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 is about arguing about everybody having the the equal right to have their gender marked on a document, no matter what that gender is. Whereas a more liberationary approach is about abolishing the requirements for gender markers in the first place. Is that kind of what you're saying? I, I guess, yeah. I mean, I think some people find that quite threatening as a concept, specifically. I mean, if we talk about that in a bit more detail, I mean, some people would say that that having a, a gender marker um, helps to validate who you are, but but I think. What that's doing—I mean, it's not—that's that's not taking the analysis further and, and asking the question: Well, why does that have to be there in the first place? What, why do we need to uh, have these legal categories that define us in 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 ways that segregate us? Um, now, um, I, I also hear, for example, as a as a uh, a qu- question about about why we would want to do that. Um, th- this idea that if we can't um, count people, then we can't quantify the discrimination uh, and, and violence that we face. But that kind of t- ignores the fact that that you know we don't count the number of intersex people. We we we, we, we and we count many things in our national census that are not on our identification documents. We don't require, um, uh, you know, issues to do with, our, our, you know, our basic demographic characteristics. Uh, most of those are not on our official identification documents. So anyway, back to the issue of equality. I mean, I, I was struggling myself with, with how do we frame the issues that intersex people face within a framework of equality. And I end up with all these very quite circuitous uh, statements like you know um, uh, equal recognition of the right to bodily integrity. You know, it's, we don't have to say it that way. We can say it in much more simple and direct ways. Um, obviously, queer communities are not the only communities that have that grapple with these sorts of questions. Uh, you know, um, there are lots of you know identity-based movements. Morgan, you have said that. Um, 
there's there's been a lot to learn from uh, disability activism, for example. Did you want to talk a little bit about about that? Um, yeah, I mean, just to be uh, to give it a background. I mean, th- there there are different ways of understanding what it means to have an intersex variation, and there are people born with intersex variations who will define themselves using a disability framework, and particularly the social model disability which talks about disability as um, a feature of society, that society disables people. Uh, Maybe individuals have impairments. But it's also the case that that very many, perhaps, it's always unquantifiable, perhaps most intersex people have impairments. For example, you know, my body does not produce sex hormones. Um, So uh, that's, that's an impairment that has to be treated for my for my health and well-being um so um the connection with disability and and the acknowledgement of the social model disability are hugely important for the intersex movement uh, and you know we, we've also had arguably the most profound and significant achievement in australia which is the first ever parliamentary inquiry into involuntary or coerced sterilization of intersex people that happened in australia in 2013 um, and that was uh, an inquiry that took place with the support and participation and advocacy from the disability movement. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, I, I could be uh, a maybe controversial and, and say that that, w- that did not happen with much support from an LGBT movement or an LGBTI movement. Only one single LGBTI organization made a submission to that inquiry. And and from my memory, it wasn't very well covered in the sort of gay press at the time either. From was I, as as I a, a journalist working in the gay press, <laughs> I said it very well covered. I didn't I, say it I wasn't. Did, covered. I did cover it. I didn't say it wasn't covered. Yes. I said it wasn't like you know, if there was an inquiry, for example, into religious freedom, which is what was going to come up. I suspect that would be something yes. that would be significantly yeah, more covered than than this inquiry, which was quite important. I, I want to maybe just build off uh, that. Um, discussion. I mean, Hannah, you, know, you also work. You work in the space of gender and feminism as well, and thinking about solidarity between, um, you know, queer movements and feminism, for example, uh, which has often had. There's often been tensions related to that. How you know is is the are they that different as that they you know that they formulate specific specific movements or you know what, what, or you know or are they. Um, a bit more connected than we might think that they are and how can we build solidarity between those sorts of different identity-based movements Um, you know, using that as an example Mm, I think it's difficult because there you know, luckily there's a a lot of feminism and feminist discussion now that says if your feminism isn't queer then it's not feminism but that doesn't mean that everyone agrees with that Um, and there are, you know, since feminism came about, um, there's been significant disagreement about what what the goal should be, what liberation means, how um, how to imagine the category of woman, how to understand women's oppression. So, um, you know, I don't think there's a... I can't just be like, oh, yeah, no, feminism and, and, and queer politics are, like, totally... Um, in line with each other like they're clearly not and there's major fractions fractions factions um you know that have that have come come up fractures that's what i want um you know and they play out in really violent ways so that's actually 
very difficult and um but i do think that there's a there is a feminism that is compatible with the queer politics and that there are ways to understand um uh, you know the the issues as interrelated yeah i I, th- I think that we we have to kind of try and move beyond the notion that 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 rights are you know there's a zero sum game here here that 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 rights for trans people mean that women lose rights i mean that that I, I, you know that concept has to be wrong you know we're all human we all deserve the same rights i uh, wonder and we had another last question I, i'm wondering whether and and this 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 is a big question that we could probably spend the entire time discussing but is there part is, is part of these these fractures you know, between this related to the dominance of identity politics that exists today that sort of creates this idea of a zero-sum game where there are specific identities that, you know, are all sort of fighting for rights individually um, and rather than thinking about the, politi- the potential collectives. Does the identity politics actually facilitate the, this sort of fracturing in some ways rather than, you know, a, a different alternative form of politics, so, you know, a class-based politics or, or you know, a more liberationary-based politics that might actually focus on bringing people together such a big question I know but yeah so I think we have to be clear about what we mean when we say identity politics because I think people have very different ideas about it and if you think about um you know say gay liberation from the 70s that movement made the made it possible to identify as gay. It was reclaiming gay. So the identity was important, but it wasn't that the politics flowed from the identity. It was like you created a political space where the identity could then be celebrated. So where we are now, I think, is that with kind of neoliberalism and individual kind of focus on well-being and and internalised fixing of oneself, it is about doing politics through your identity you know I uh, the way I am in the world is my politics and that's not to say that um, the way that people present or or identify doesn't disrupt norms and might challenge a space but when all of the weight of that is on your identity it's a very anxious game and it's a very um, exclusive space where you know like you were saying Morgan perhaps there's a lot of people in the intersex community who don't feel like they could come to this space perhaps because they're they don't identify as LGBT in a you know in a way that they would feel like they could could be here so I guess what I'm trying to say is that I think that that version of identity politics is is harmful for everyone (laughs) but it's not to say that identity and having a politics of identity is something we should do away with sure I mean because obviously it's a as a sort of basic um way to frame a a political movement particularly with quite mainstream political goals and engaging with mainstream political systems, it can be very useful just to get attention. Yeah, I mean, I I think, from my own perspective, that we're still trying to create affirmative, non-pathologizing ways of being ourselves. Uh, And and that's still hugely important. It's hugely important to the population that I'm part of. Um, uh, It's vital. Uh, It's also vital, I mean, we could could have a whole conversation or or podcast on intersex and issues of identity, full stop. I mean, this notion that it is intersex and identity, and I think there are some quite harmful ways of looking at intersex as a particular form of identity, you know, particularly a gender identity, 
because most intersex people would not share that identity. Um, but um, if we think about intersex, for example, as in a kind of an additive identity, a political identity, a way of affirming a stigmatized body, then that's a, quite a powerful way of in, of um, uh, of encapsulating what it means to be intersex. But you know, uh, there's, there's only a, deg a degree to which identities can help. I mean. I was thinking earlier uh, of a discussion about whether we look at identities or whether we look at issues. And, and for me, I mean, it's the issues that are important. Um, and there are way, many powerful ways of also of collaborating um, between people who are stigmatized on the basis of our sex characteristics or gender expression or gender identity or sexual orientation that can be very powerful. Uh, and, and, you know, not everything is about identity and there are there are helpful, powerful tools and, and approaches out there that can help us to do that. And the Archicada Principles is one of those um, because that, that talks about you know, particular human rights, about, about the, um, the right to legal recognition, about the right to bodily integrity, and even more powerfully perhaps even, the right to truth. Uh, because, you know, for example, I, I know many intersex people who don't have access to their medical records. They, they know some of what has been done to them but they don't know the full story. They don't know the rationales for those interventions or the exact timings. Um, so the right to truth is actually a really powerful uh, tool, I think, for us. So I think maybe that might be a good time to wrap up our discussion. Um, just so folks know, uh, this, this, this um, session was scheduled to finish at 12.45, but we've been given a little piece of card that says we're finishing at 1. Um, so we've got an extra 15 minutes before lunchtime, so I'm guessing that maybe lunch has been extended or something like that. Um, so what we wanted to do is maybe open up for 15 minutes if people have comments, questions. Um, I, to get it on the recording, if you'd like to be part of the recording, we'll probably have to get you to come up and speak into a mic, if that's okay, maybe Ben's mic, because it's on the air and then we can respond to those and we'll have about 15 minutes of that if that's good for folks. Can I say one thing while Absolutely. people are thinking of questions? Um, because my girlfriend really wanted me to plug this and if I don't, I'll get in trouble. <laughs> um, look up No Pride in Detention on Facebook. There's a group marching for LGBTIQ refugees at the Midsummer Festival on the 28th of January. Um, and that is a good moment of solidarity. Uh, refugees on Manus Island were very vocal during the marriage equality campaign about supporting it here in Australia, and certainly the time for um, solidarity back to say, you know, free free all refugees. Um, but that's a good kind of moment of solidarity. And that it doesn't, we, we don't need to be kind of like seeking specifically queer issues in a kind of horrific kind of problem like... Uh, offshore Australia's regime of off offshore detention for queers to care about it. Good plug. <laughs> <laughs> so, does anyone have any comments, questions they'd like to make? Yeah, look, my name's Claire Ellis. I run, I run Ally Training at um, the University of New South Wales and one of the things that I think... I missed the beginning of your discussion, but one of the things I think people find so difficult like in terms of advancing equality for everybody is the whole obviously the alphabet soup and that you know kind of jarring notions of identity that people feel that they're going to trip up around identity and all those confusions around essential identities um, essentializing um, female and femininity and feminism and all those sorts of things as well and I guess I'll ask you a question um, as a panel and I've just been thinking about like the gang you know that sort of racist stuff around African gangs recently and thinking like 
I guess given that um, LGBTIQ plus rights are sort of really advancing, I guess, in my view, and I think what do you think that um, this space can sort of educate the rest of society in terms of moving beyond those um, jarring and problematic and, you know, identity politics? I mean, I definitely think that there's there's some burden on us to be okay with people getting things wrong and, and to to have, you know, as much as we can, and, and as Hannah said before, we're, we're often um, tired, uh, as much as people, as is within people's capacity to be uh, forgiving and to, to encourage people to kind of step into this. Um, and I, I, I certainly think, like, whilst not kind of giving time to assholes. Um, who who are not doing that with goodwill, being um, uh, yeah, in- encouraging people to to do that with goodwill and to 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 maybe get things wrong. Yeah, I think actually just building on from this, I think we've had this conversation on the podcast before, but I think that that for me the the integral part is the goodwill bit. You can you can recognise when someone is coming into a space and doesn't have goodwill and is trying to cause problems or is trying to rabble rouse or whatever and is is generally not trying to engage in an issue uh, and is deliberately doing things that are that are hurtful. And in those spaces I'm not going to be standing there saying we're going to educate you about this and and make you, you know, you know, it gets you get you on board. Those kind of spaces, you're deliberately hurting people. We don't want you in our space. It's for me. It's when, when we have those moments where someone has genuine goodwill, and I see mistakes being made, and 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 I want to be critical of that as well because I think that that assumes that there is a correct language that is out there, or there is correct things that you know, correct ways to speak. And I think that that is often promoted, particularly on the internet, which is you know very good at doing that kind of stuff. Um, but it's, it's not necessarily true. There are genuine debates to be had about language as well and to be had about how we talk about these issues. But if someone's coming in and has genuinely goodwill and then we push them out because they make mistakes, that really worries me at the same point of time, oh, even whilst acknowledging the, the tiredness that we might have around these sorts of issues. It's so, it's so tricky, though, because you know, as we were talking about before around the, the issue of like policing Mardi Gras and things like that, goodwill is, is not always... Um, enough, and I've, I've certainly had situations where, like, straight friends have uh, said, for example, oh, I'm I'm marching in Pride March with like the the group at the the queer group at the an allies group at the bank that I work at, and like, isn't that great? And I'm kind of sitting there going, I don't, I don't know how I feel about this. Um, and you know, you certainly get into those situations where. I don't know, maybe, maybe then it's about being willing to open up those cans of worms sometimes and, and go, look, it's super complicated. <laughs> um, here are all my positions on things. Um, and hopefully those people aren't scared away by it. I mean, Hannah, you had some comments on this before. Do you have a reflection on this question? Um, yeah, I think it's important. Like those uh, examples that you bring up, they're political issues, right? This is a political debate to have. And one of the most important things is that we actually have a space for the debate, not just, you know, figuring out the blueprint carefully, but actually having a debate. Um, sometimes those spaces can become too exclusive and that is really problematic. On the, sa- on the other hand, um, there is a certain level, I think, of, say, um, yeah, maybe this goes to the goodwill thing, like uh, hate speech that some people might um, promote that isn't open-minded about changing their position it's not just that they don't have the right language but it is um it is it is vilifying particular groups of people and i think 
those people ought not be welcome. Um, so it's a challenge. I mean, it's just a hard thing, isn't it? Um, and politics is really exhausting. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure if this is a fair distinction, but I'm going to go with it anyway because it might spur discussion. And it just it, this is just based on what I see in these particular spaces. I think that there is often these debates occur in, 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 on issues of language where people are in a discussion about a particular issue and there are debates about what what is the correct term you should use around a particular identity group or, you know, you use this term and I, and I, I find that term offensive. Um, and, and I think that those debates can often end up being exclusionary where you get to the point where there is correct language and if you don't use the correct language and if you don't educate yourself on the correct language, you kind of get can, can at times get pushed out. And I, that worries me. I find that potentially different to the Mardi Gras example, which is a... In, I mean, they're both political debates, but one is more about political philosophy necessarily than it is about the use of the correct language that underpins that political philosophy, if that makes sense. I'm not sure if this, 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 distinct, yeah, this distinction works, but that's how it's working in my head that... At the very least, they feel like they're at very different kind of ends of a, a spectrum mm. or very different places. Yeah, I, mean, I think we, we need to have this kind of room for space to talk about language and also... Um, respectfully challenge each other about the words we use. I mean, because that's the way that we evolve. I mean, you know, and I'm conscious that my use of uh, language to describe intersex people, to describe the relationships that we have to other populations, has changed quite dramatically in many ways o- o- over the years. Um, I-, I also know from just looking through a couple of older papers in the last couple of weeks a lot of what I say hasn't changed at all as well. So, I mean, but, but you know, I think we evolve. You, you have to be careful with these um, critiques of the language claims that people are making because it can start to sound like blaming the community for not being cohesive enough. And I think that when you look at it, how these things historically, like the events of fractures, happen in contexts of extreme homophobia and transphobia where there's real pressure on the community and that's when you start to see people bunkering down so but when people feel confident when you know you're on the front foot like there's a lot less of that um with you know historically things happening in Mardi Gras have been this classic kind of case of this where say um during the AIDS crisis there was there was an extreme kind of peak of homophobia, you know, violent physical assaults. And Mardi Gras decided, the committee decided that they'd kind of bunker down on their membership rules, which ended up, um, if you identified as as gay, lesbian or trans, it was generally fine. But if you identified as bisexual, you had to do a lot more things to prove that you were kind of a reasonable member to be part of the march. And so... As a result, for a number of years, bisexual identifying people were effectively cut out of Mardi Gras. Like, that is a terrible thing. We also have to understand the context in which that happened, which was this crunch down, this this really intense homophobia. So the point isn't... You have to say, yes, that was a terrible thing that the Mardi Gras committee did, but our common struggle is the homophobia that is causing this pressure. Like, that's... I know this is a hard argument to make, but it's like... There's a reason why we turn inward. Totally. Well, yeah. I mean, it kind of rests on a sort of a bit of a false consciousness uh, argument to some degree. Like we have to go, like our communities sometimes treat each other really badly, but there are reasons for that. Like to what extent can we hold people accountable in those in those given spaces? I think is a 
it's often a difficult question to answer. I think we should hold people accountable. I just think that we hold people accountable and we don't spend all of our time on that. We look outward at what we need to change together to change our dynamic. So that uh, well, that question took us up 10 minutes. We have one more quick question that maybe we can do before we wrap up. Have anyone else got any comments they'd like to make? Yeah, great. Did you want to come up and speak into the mic? Okay, no worries. I mean, I have been hugely... So the, the question was about, is it is it harder to have um, safer or more open debates in online spaces? Um, I mean, I've been hugely critical of this in, in the past and, and probably more more so than, than a lot of people I know. Uh, like, I, I think social media was kind of terrible for having these sorts of conversations in lots of ways. I mean, it's, it's also... I try to acknowledge that for a lot of people, it's the only spaces where they can have these conversations and particularly for people who, who are living in an unsafe situation or, um, or, or, or are not able to, to meet other people uh, physically for, for whatever reason, that, that can be a real kind of haven, but... I also think a Facebook comment thread is the the enemy of um, forgiveness and and nuance, <laughs> um, and I think that also means that we have to remember that um, not only to 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 be to put caveats on 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 all of these discussions that we have online, but also to remember that online is not is not everything. I think for people who primarily exist in these spaces in terms of queer issues, it can feel like that's um, the only conversations people are having. Those are the only spaces in which community exists and. Uh, in some specific cases, that can be true, but but certainly not in 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 all. I can remember being in, in 2012 at a conference. It's actually actually a conference celebrating um, uh, Dennis Altman's um, history and, and I think his departure from from the trope. It was called After Homosexuality. Um, but um, at that at that meeting uh, or that conference, rather, I, I remember somebody presenting a paper on how unique the intersex movement was because it was transfigured through the internet um, I, I find that a bit strange at a kind of a at a queer conference you know given, given the, the role of the internet in establishing continuing you know queer relationships or, or hookups or whatever you want to call it but but uh, um, you know the internet has actually transfigured all of our movements uh, in, in many different ways, in many quite profound ways. Um, but um, you know, I, I think we do need. Sorry, the intersex movement has grown, developed, shaped itself through discourse online uh, on the internet, and, and we would be lost without it because we are so far apart from each other. It's the only way of connecting with people. But there is this balance between being open to, to, to new voices and curating. Uh, to make sure that places are, are safe for people to share different perspectives. Um, and, I, you know, Twitter does not do that. I mean, <laughs> no, it does not. Uh, we'll, we'll probably have to, to wrap it up there. We're getting the, the, the word. Um, so thank you so much to everyone for coming. This has been really great. Thank you particularly to uh, Morgan and Hannah for joining us. It's been really fantastic to have you. So if we could have a, a round of applause for these guys, that would be really great. Um, thank you. So, Ben... Uh, we also want to thank uh, Dina Curie, who helped us out with, with some of the tech today, and our podcast network, Earbuds, who also did that.
Um, so Ben, myself and Morgan, I believe, will be at the conference today and tomorrow. So come on and say hello. Um, and as always, you can find our podcast on, on social media at Queers Podcast on, base, on, on both Facebook and Twitter. Um, or you could email us at queerspodcast at gmail.com. Our soon-to-be-launched new website is queerspodcast.com where you can find our episodes or you can subscribe to us on iTunes. And thank you again all for joining us and once more, thank you to Morgan and Hannah for agreeing to participate. Thanks for the invitation. It's been lovely. Yeah, thanks. I feel very privileged to have spoken. Thanks, everyone. Earbuds, Melbourne's podcast network. EarbudsNetwork.com Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series We Were the Lucky Ones with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.